0: book of Colossians. Now, Eric did the exegetical work. He went right through the book of Colossians and explained it brilliantly. I thought it was fantastic. But what I want to do is do a little walkthrough whereby we do applications. So this whole Sunday school is going to be about taking the book of Colossians and applying it to current issues in the church. Okay, so it's all about applications, all the discussion, whatever you want to bring forth, I welcome it, okay? So, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning together, together with your precious flock that you bought with your blood. Thank you for everyone you've added to the church. We're delighted to be brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. And Lord, we want to take your word and apply it. We want to understand what you said and know how it helps us and the issues that are facing us as Christians in this day that we live in. And we pray that you give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to start with the Christ hymn, as it's called. There's a section in Colossians 1 that's about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And one of the things that is absolutely essential for Christian theology is the doctrine of Christ. And Christ is so important, Paul can call the gospel preaching Christ. So let's see what Paul says about the person and work of Christ, which begins in Colossians 1 and verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Stop right there. Here is what we need to know about spiritual warfare. And we're going to talk about that today. We've been rescued and transferred. And we're in a different domain. Those who are lost are in the domain of darkness. Those who are saved are in the domain of Christ. And if we only knew that, there would be an awful lot of people writing books that would go right out of business and there are so many people who suggest that Christians are under the power of Satan and they need to f- have some special technique or spiritual technology in order to get themselves out of that situation. As soon as you have that sort of worldview, and we'll talk about that in Colossians 2, but as soon as you have that sort of worldview that, okay, there are these, I don't doubt the spirits are there, or Satan is there, or principalities and powers are there, no doubt. But as soon as you think you need to know secret information about such things in order to navigate yourself through the spirit world, what you end up with 100% of the time, without fail, is a a class of people that the world calls shamans. All right? In Christianity, deliverance counselors are shamans and wish doctors. And they claim to have secret knowledge about the spirit world that you need, otherwise bad things are going to happen to you. I've been talking about this for years. I've been writing about this for years. And I'm absolutely frustrated that the church will not listen. They keep going back to the shamans. Now, these people like Bob Larson or what have you would deny that they're shamans, but that's exactly what they are. Because we don't know what these spirits are doing or what they look like or what their names are or whatever that we think we need to know. And I have to confess that I used to be one of those shamans. I got delivered from deliverance ministry in 1980. <laughs> okay? And I can't claim it's because of any great intelligence on my part. It was just a matter of finally being totally frustrated. All the things that we thought we were going to do, just it just didn't happen. The people had the same problems and it was just a merry-go-round. And I finally cried out to the Lord, which I should have done five years earlier. And I found the passage, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, that delivered me from what I was doing. And it said there, that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, apt to teach, patient, and so on. And just teach, and if God grants people repentance, they'll be recovered from the snare of Satan. And so that's uh, something that, we could have known if we just had read the book of Colossians and believed it for what it said. So the gospel, those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ have transferred out of a domain, that is the domain of darkness, and into another domain, the kingdom of God, called here the kingdom of his beloved son, literally in the Greek, the son of his love. And whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's an issue that will be central to the book of Colossians. Our problem, dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, is not the existence of spirits or principalities and powers or Satan or Stoikia, as we talked about if you were in Eric's class, but our problem is our own sin against God. And the one angle Satan has to attack us, he's the accuser of the brethren, is our own sin against God. And so therefore in Revelation it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto death. How how is that going to overcome Satan? Well, because his accusations are now groundless. There's nothing he can do. We're forgiven. The worst thing he could do is Uh, instigate some process whereby we'll be killed. That's that's the worst Satan can do is to to maybe kill us. But it says they love not their lives unto death. So you you kill these martyrs, they go to heaven to be with God forever. There's nothing you can actually do to separate them from the love of God. And that's what it says in Romans 8. There's no way that we can ever be separated from the love of God no matter what and no created being can separate us from God. And so the worst thing they can do is kill us, and if they do that, they send us to be with God. He is the image, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn here doesn't mean that Jesus is created. It's a word that means preeminent in context. So Jesus wasn't created. Jesus is preeminent. Okay, He's preeminent over the entire creation. For by him all things were created. So one of the claims that the New Testament makes in John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 and here in Colossians chapter 1 is that Jesus Christ is the creator. Okay? He created all things. All things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. What does that mean? Well, it means that all of these things whatever we conceive of as being a spiritual power or being in the universe, they were all created by Jesus Christ, and he has authority and dominion over all of them, as he is the creator. It says here in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler over the universe, and he holds everything together. So that's how great our Lord is. He's is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, pleroma, I believe the word is, fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, the Colossians in Asia Minor were worried about the stoichia, the spirits, okay, the heavenly things. And what they were most worried about was having bad fate. They believed that their fate was in the hands of the spirit world. And they had a class of people in their world that tried to mediate between the spirits and the people. And so they had amulets, incantations, different techniques to try to scare off the bad fate and the bad spirits. All of the pagan world believes in spirits, okay? There's no such thing as a pagan tribal society that's materialist you know what I mean? in other words that there's no such thing as spirits everything is just what it is it's all atoms and molecules and so on that was The secular humanism arose in western civilization but in paganism secular humanism isn't really known they all believe in spirits why do all the pagan tribes believe in spirits? because the spirits exist, and they know it, okay? And so they have their witch doctors and their shamans and their people that try to mediate between ordinary people and the spirit world. And they have their techniques that may or may not work to try to ward off the bad fate that would be caused by the spirits. Now, the thing I try to tell Christians and it's amazing after all of these years I can't remember what year it was I first wrote an article about this I get more emails about spirits than just about anything else I get more phone calls about spirits than just about anything else and even when they read my article where I talk about how the fact I used to be in the deliverance ministry and how I got out of it and why it doesn't work I still get calls from people and and they say maybe you can help me I've got spirits well, didn't you read the article? <laughs> they they call me because they know that they have spirits. And then uh, patiently I try to explain to them the gospel and the, how Christ delivers us. And I remember this one guy who just was adamant. He says, there's got to be somebody in this world that has the power of the Holy Ghost that can get this spirit out of me. And I said, well, how do you know you have a spirit? He said, well, I feel it in the pit of my stomach. It's churning in there, the spirit. (laughs) Roger, I'm going to have him call you. (laughs) He said, gas. (laughs) And so I remember talking to this guy for probably 45 minutes. And finally I said, okay, let's just assume you're right, that you have the spirit and that it won't go out and that there's no man of God that can get it out. I've got to ask you a question. Are you willing to serve God and trust Jesus Christ for the rest of your life, even if God doesn't deliver you from this? And he said, what kind of question is that? <laughs> and I said, well, I th- it's a legitimate question. My question is whether you're willing to serve God or not. I said, we have a lady in our church who's blind, and she's serving God, and I'd say being blind is probably worse than what you've got. I said, so will you make a commitment that you're going to serve God like Paul was willing to serve God even when he had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan? And he said, I don't like that question, and he he kind of got mad at me, and that was the end of the conversation. I think that's sort of a no answer, isn't it? So God has to do things on my terms before I decide I'll serve God. So my view is that God's in charge of the spirit world. And as I preached here a few months ago, if you think about the book of Job, remember how Satan went before God to ask permission to afflict Job? And God gave him permission? What if Job had been to a spiritual warfare seminar and learned how to rebuke Satan? Satan? Who'd he be rebuking? God. He's rebuking God for giving Satan permission. So I want us to get this understanding of the kind of worldview that's being laid out here in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1 is about the supremacy of Christ. Colossians 1 is telling us that if we're in Christ, we're safe. We've been transferred into a different kingdom. We're in the hands of the very Creator Himself. We're in the hands of the One who has authority over everything, who loves us, who died for us, who cares for us, and is guaranteed by His own blood that He's going to bring us to glory. That's the point of Romans 8 as well. Verse 18, For He's the head of the body the church, and He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things. Verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Notice that the issue as far as God is concerned It's not whether we have difficulties, it's not whether we have afflictions, it's not whether there are spirits around that have our best disinterest in mind, because they do, and they're there, but it's whether we're blameless before God. That's the issue. Are you blameless before God? And if you look at yourself, and if you're like me, you'd have to say, well, I don't feel very blameless. The reason we're blameless is our legal standing in Christ. The imputed righteousness of Christ is what makes us blameless. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, we discussed that, I'm sure, when Eric taught through this, but it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't do enough and we had to add to the merits of Christ, as the Roman Catholic Church says. What is lacking is a, a, a word in the Greek that's also used in Philippians for Epaphroditus bringing the gift to Paul that the church had given, because what was lacking was getting it to him, so what Paul is filling up that is lacking is by bringing the message to the people who need to hear it, okay? Not doing something to add to the merits of Christ. Verse 25 of this church, I was made a minister through the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden for the past ages and generations, but now but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now remember, in the norms of language used in the times of the Bible, The term every man means every person. It's a generic term, not gender-specific. So everyone is to be presented complete in Christ. How is that going to happen? By proclaiming Christ and admonishing and teaching and proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Let's go to chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. So when the Bible talks about preaching Christ, the Christian preacher, the elders of the church, would do well to think about the implications of that. We are called to preach Christ. Remember Paul says we preach not ourselves? The worst sermon topic a pastor has ever come up with is self. Okay, Unworthy topic. We're to preach Christ. And what does that mean? Well, people should constantly be having put before them the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who He is, what He did, why they need Him, and what He expects of them. Continually, we should be hearing about Christ. And we should be having our minds focused on Christ. We should hear about the cross. We should hear about redemption. We should hear about the resurrection. We should hear about Christ's session in heaven at the right hand of God as our inner interceding for us and the fact that Christ is coming to return bodily for his own church all of these things should be the center focus of the church and that's how we have unity so that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love how does that happen? well through preaching Christ people are talking about unity and they're misinterpreting what unity means. I get uh, emails and letters and phone calls about this matter where individuals go to the pastors of their churches and ask the pastor to preach Christ. If they ask me what to do, they say, well, our church is going secret sensitive or our church is going into entertainment or our church is doing this, our church is doing that. What should I do? I said, go to your pastor and ask him to preach Christ. Then you better better be ready to explain to him what that means. Okay? Because it's not for sure that he understands it. And what they get for an answer when they ask their own pastor to preach Christ is he says, well, maybe you'd be happier in a different church. You might as well say, no, I won't preach Christ. So then what are you doing in the ministry? Resign. Go sell TVs. There's got to be something better to do with your time if you don't want to preach Christ. How in the world can you be called to preach the gospel but not called to preach Christ? Christ is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And the unity, the pastor would say to these people, you are an enemy of the unity of this church. Well, if preaching Christ causes disunity, you've got a problem. The unity of the church is Christ Himself. And I guarantee you that a church that gathers around the means of grace, focused on the person of Jesus Christ, is going to be a unified church. Because we're unified in the gospel. That's how where unity comes from. It doesn't come from heavy-handed, authoritative persons saying, you do what I tell you. It comes from Christ. In whom, verse 3, or hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, look at verse 6, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in him. Let me make an application to that. This this Sunday school is all about application. You don't begin your Christian life on one basis and then proceed on a different one. That's a huge error. It's one that I made in my life that wasted 10 years, literally 10 years wasted. No, it wasn't wasted because in God's providence, I learned what not to do. Okay. Sometimes we learn from our mistakes but i was under the uh idea as a new christian i immediately after i became converted i started getting drawn to the deeper life movement all right somebody's got a better version of christianity and i'm going to find out what it is somebody has a higher spirituality somebody has a secondary experience somebody has an elite version of the kingdom of god or something of the of that matter and so i spent years searching after the higher life, the deeper life, the pietistic life, and whatever you want to call it. That brought me through a whole range of false teachings. It brought me first into the word of faith thing. I, was, I wasn't in it for long, but I was for a couple of years. I used to listen to Kenneth Hagin before anybody knew who he was in the early 70s. And uh, by God's grace, you know how I got out of delivered from Kenneth Hagin? When I first started listening to him, I was I was listening on the radio in the early the 1970s, and he kept talking about how he got his teachings from E.W. Kenyon. And he talked about Kenyon Bible studies, and Kenyon said this, and Kenyon said that. This is like 72. He wrote a book in 1976 that I bought called I Believe in Visions. And in his 1976 book, it turned out he went to heaven, and he got all this stuff from Jesus himself. And even in my foolishness, I was thinking, okay, Kenyon is not Jesus, all right. First, you know, when he was wasn't a big deal, he acknowledged he got it from Kenyon, and when he get, got more popular, he claimed to go to heaven, and Jesus told him how to make everybody wealthy. And so I I ditched that, okay. Thought, well, this isn't it. But then there was always something else. There was Watchman Nee, and there was Derek Prince, and there was the shepherding movement, and this and that, and everything else. All of which made one. Claim, even though they had different ways of getting there, and the claim was that you could have a higher order version of Christianity than the ordinary people out there have. And let me tell you what I know by God's grace now. There are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. (laughs) Okay? To be saved and to know Jesus is the highest thing that you can think about. You don't need something better. And as soon as you know there's nothing better than just to know Jesus Christ, you'll be safe from all of these people that are peddling higher order Christianity. So it says, as you receive Christ, walk in Him. How do you receive Christ? By grace through faith. How do you walk in Him? By grace through faith. That's it. Well, don't you have something better than that? No, I don't. I have nothing better than that, by grace through faith. Walk in Him. Having been, verse 7, firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, verse 8, look at this carefully. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to to Christ. Now, Eric did a fantastic job of explaining this and bringing out the Greek, but let me just give you a simple application here. This is the one that really blows your mind. The elementary principles are the stoichia. Remember those guys? What are the stoichia? Spirits. All right? according to, as far as I understand the Greek, would give us the idea that the philosophy that was being taught to the Colossians came from the Stoichia, okay? So there are spirits out there, and these spirits are teaching doctrines. Remember Paul talked about doctrines of demons? Doctrines of demons. And here is the amazing thing. I, one article I wrote, I called it the confidence game or the the way the spirits control people. The spirits teach a doctrine that purports to deliver people from the spirits. Okay? All right? And so you listen to the doctrine of the spirits, the stoichia, and they say you need to do this and this and this to get rid of the spirits. Now, the spirits are playing both ends of the game, okay? Because I hear people, uh, they I've gotten calls just recently about this, and they said, well, I don't know if I can believe your articles about this. Well, why not? Because I went to a deliverance counselor, and I had this problem, and the spirit went away, and now I'm better. And I said, listen, what you don't understand is those spirits can do anything they want. You can't see them, you don't control them. They can leave if that will um, help their cause of making you believe this false doctrine, or they can come back, or they can leave and come back, or they can do whatever they want. Because you're going into their realm, and they are very good at their realm. They've been in it for thousands of years. They know their way around, and you don't. I remember uh, somebody on the John Ankerberg show back in the 80s talking about this, and he said, Trying to do business with these spirits is like playing tennis with your half of the court underwater. (laughs) Okay? They know their way around. You don't. So the only thing that you can really do is depend on Christ and let him take care of that realm. Trust in the finished work of Christ and don't listen to the philosophy that was actually taught by the stoichia. The stoichia are willing to teach you a philosophy that purports to defeat the stoichia. Why? Because it's in their best interest to do it that way, in your best disinterest. According to the Stoichia of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Why is Paul telling them they've been made complete? so that they won't think they need something else. It's the something else that gets us into trouble. It's the something else that the religious leaders peddle. It's how they sell their books. It's how they get people to watch them on TV. It's how they get people to send them money. It's the something else that's the problem. Now, if all that's being offered is the finished work of Christ, then that's good. But watch out for the something else. You're made complete. He's the head overall rule and authority. What's the implication? I'm just making the applications today. Eric did a teaching. I'm just doing the applications, all right? In him, you've been made com- complete. Why is that important? Because if Christ is the head overall rule and authority, and if you're complete in Christ, what does that mean about you? <laughs> yeah, you're not... Under all rule and authority, you're under Christ. So you don't need anything more. That's all you need, is to have Christ. That's everything. I wish somebody, you know what, it's all my fault. I'll tell you, it was my fault that I wasted ten years. And actually, I can't even say I wish somebody would have warned me, because somebody did. Let me tell you a story. You may have heard this before. I was sitting in Bible college in 1974, I was in a class. Reverend Wesley Smith was the teacher. He was my favorite, favorite teacher in Bible college. He knew the Bible. He was, he was a brilliant Bible scholar. And, but he saw me carrying around spiritual man by watchman knee, and he heard me talking, and he could see the stuff percolating in my heart and my mind of all being a higher-order Christian. And uh, Reverend Smith said, uh, Bob, I've got a challenge for you. He said this right in class. I've got a challenge for you. I want you because I had two years of Greek. He said, "I want you to go get Colossians two from the Greek, translate it, and come back and tell me what it means." Colossians chapter two. I said, "Okay," because I was brassy. I thought I could do anything, right? <laughs> so I went and got out all the helps and the Greek and the <laughs> commentaries, and I'm going through Colossians two. I couldn't figure it out. There were all these words in the Greek there that are used in some sort of a way that even the scholars back in 1974 didn't understand. M. Batuan, Eric explained all of this. A guy by the name of Clinton Arnold eventually wrote a book that just totally explained the terminology in Colossians 2, but that hadn't been written in 1974. And I worked and worked and looked and looked, and God bless him, dear brother Wesley Smith understood what my problem was, which was the problem corrected in Colossians 2. And so he asked me to go learn it from the Greek, and I came back and I was sitting in class, and Reverend Smith says, well, Bob, that, what did you learn? I says, I learned that I cannot understand it. <laughs> that's, that's all I could say. And he never said me anymore. Fifteen years later when I read or more more than that later, I read Clinton Arnold, and I came to understand what Colossians 2 was all about, and I realized that Dr. Smith understood that I had the problem that Paul was corrected in Colossians 2. And I I was able to look him up and get a hold of him, and I wrote him a letter, and I said, "Uh, Reverend Smith, I'm so sorry that I wouldn't listen to you like I should have when I was a young man, but I want to thank God for you that you're willing to point me in the right direction. You cared about me, you saw what my problem was, and I'm sorry I'm so dense that it took till now before I figured out what it means in Colossians too. But thank you. And he wrote back and he said, Well, I knew something good might happen. He said, Because you were willing to stand in front of that entire class and actually admit there was something you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a minor victory. <laughs> but uh, what I, I say that, in order to just point this out, many of you, I've talked to you know many, many of you, and you express frustration with the fact that you have friends and family that you're trying to point to the truth of the gospel, and they're deceived and they don't want to listen and they're listening to false teachers and they're listening to TV preachers that, that aren't right on and you're frustrated and you're looking for better tools. How can I do this? How can I explain to maybe I'm not saying it well enough. I want you to know this. Be encouraged. You never know the future. And it's worth telling somebody the truth now even if they won't listen Now. Because somebody told me the truth, and when 10 years or 15 years later it sunk in, I remembered who that was. And I was willing to thank him. Thank you, Reverend Wesley Smith. I love you. You cared about me. I was a stupid kid. thought he had all the answers. So maybe God is going to use you in the same way. So here I was studying Colossians 2, and I couldn't understand it. Verse 11, and, by, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What sort of circumcision is he talking about here? Anybody got an answer? Yes, whoever said that? Ryan, thank you. Circumcision of the heart. Now, why is that important? Well, because by understanding that, you're going to not be deceived by those who teach infant baptism based on the next verse. All right? He's not talking about circumcision that was used under the old covenant of the male who was eight days old, but he's talking about circumcision of the heart, which is also revealed in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith, the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul understood baptism, as he also taught in Romans 6, as to be buried and raised. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our joining in Christ, with Christ, burying the old man, and being symbolically raised from the dead. Okay? So when we baptize people, which reminds me of summer, we need, Robert, don't let me forget, we need to baptize. We go out every summer. One year I forgot, we did it in late September, and I don't want to do that again. <laughs> we want to bury the old man, not necessarily freeze him. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, uh, but I, I point that out, that this is like burning the bridge. You're not going back to the world. Okay? Verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Okay, so what was hostile to us? The law and our own sin. The law and our sin against the law meant that we were guilty, that the only penalty that would be just would be for us to be sent to hell. And we need to recognize that we're facing that penalty and that without any remedy we would definitely end up in hell but that God paid the penalty in Christ and that through the cross he canceled out the certificate of debt. And if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not under the debt of sin. All of your sins are washed away. You have the imputed righteousness of Christ and you have no more fear of eternal penalty. So he forgave all our transgressions. And verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Notice says here in verse 15, Colossians 2, he disarmed. Disarmed the rulers and authorities. The power, the Satan, the stoichia, the principalities, the demons, whatever uh, sort of evil spirit beings there are in this whole entire universe, the power they had over us was our debt of sin before God. That's why Satan's called the accuser of the brethren. There is where I was off base for all those years. Because I thought our debt of sin against God was not that big of an issue. That was just sort of something, well, you... You know, you accept Jesus and then you go on. And that actually identifying, naming, manipulating, controlling, expelling, uh, renouncing, breaking curses, all of those things were what we needed. And so now, in my mind, because I was a believer in the Colossian heresy, my mind, I had to know secret information that's not revealed in the Bible. And I had to figure that out by some spiritual process. And that if I didn't figure it out, I was going to come under a curse and it would be my own fault. And so you spend your life trying to manipulate the world of the spirits. And they cooperate with you. Absolutely they do. I saw manifestations. You you can't imagine the manifestations I saw. I see people shaking or being thrown on the ground or going into violent convulsions. And then all of a sudden they get up and they say, I'm fine, I'm delivered it's hard not to believe your experience. I had people tell me I had great power over Satan and that Satan was scared of me. Well, that goes right to your head. And what I didn't know was these spirits can do whatever they want. They can leave somebody, they can stay, they can come, they can go, they can whatever they want to do. They're in control of their world. I'm not. But if I'm in Christ seated above them, then I don't have to worry about them. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. That's what Ephesians is telling us. That's what Colossians is telling us. You're seated in Christ. You don't need these shamans and witch doctors and deliverance counselors. They're all the same thing. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Saw the name of a book the other day called Disarming the Rulers and Authorities. One of the two major problems with that book Number one, the tense. What does it say here in the Bible? Disarmed. So it's not something that needs to happen now. It's something that already happened. The other problem is the subject. In the Bible, God did it. In the book, some man does it. So there's two problems with that. He did it. He disarmed them. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, okay, therefore, verse sixteen, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now what does food, drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days have to do with spirits? <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: There's a doctrine called the doctrine of correspondences, and uh, for many thousands of years, man has tried to reach God through nature, and by corresponding parts of the human body to planets, to plants, to rocks, to all sorts of things, uh, man thinks that he is able to interface with God. Well, the same with spirits. For instance, the Catholic Church, the pray to uh, the angels or the archangel michael or mary or some other deity you know and that's a spirit masquerading as as whatever because it's not christ so you th- there's it's like a, it, and the word for this whole mess is called the great
0: chain of being yes okay so you know about that yeah i know about the great chain of being absolutely all right the the most popular religion thank you bill that was well said. The most popular religion in the world has always been paganism. Okay, and within the supposed monotheistic religions, there's always paganism masquerading under with, underneath of it. With with the Jewish religion, you have Kabbalah, which is paganism, and you have paganism in Islam, and you have paganism in Christianity. Paganism is human beings' attachment to the mother Earth, the goddess or whatever. Paganism gets its information from not revealed source, like God's infallible prophets, but handed down through traditions of man. okay? It comes from the Stoichia. I'm going to write my next article about how the fact that fascism the religion of fascism was paganism, okay? There's this idea of attachment to Mother Earth, the organic, the folkish. It was called Volkisch in German, which roughly translated as folkish. And it was a reaction against the Industrial Revolution, against the Enlightenment, against rationalism. And there was sort of a back to the earth, back to nature, back to Mother Earth movement. That's what's popular today, and it's basically pagan. And paganism has all of these ways that have been dreamed up by humans to interact with the spirit world. So you have food and drink and festival and new moon and Sabbath, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so they come up with these practices that people need to to have in order to have their pagan connection to the stoichia. Verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, but delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. You're defrauded by self-abasement. There's never been an end in the world of religions that are telling people that they have to do some sort of self affliction or asceticism in order to be more spiritual or religion or religious or to scare off the spirits or whatever it is that they're trying to do and you can't make something so rigorous and nasty that somebody won't try to do it okay you, you can tell people you need to like they used to do in the monasteries in the medieval ages why don't you sleep on this big, huge granite rock that's cold that sucks the heat out of your body. That would make you real miserable. So therefore, God would be very happy with you. (laughs) Okay? Why don't you do self-flagellation, or why don't you hang yourself on a wall in shackles and just hang there? Why don't you go without this or without that or without something else? The more miserable and afflicted you are, the more happy God is and the more spiritual you are. Well, that sells. Why would anybody buy that? I mean, if you're just going to have a man-made religion, why not have a man-made religion where you get to be happy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> makes more sense to me. But anyhow, self-abasement becomes a religious practice here. But it's not from Christ. Notice it says, take uh, the worship of angels. There's a whole chapter in Clinton Arnold's book, The Colossian Syncretism, just about what is meant by the worship of angels. Remember that, Eric? And and what he came to uh, believe, based on evidence from archaeology and from the different religious items that they have found in the Asia Minor, was that this worship of angels was actually calling on angels and using their names to try to mediate between them and Okay, And so they had these lists. You might have an amulet that you wear around your neck, and there would be a list of the names of angels on there. And these angelic names would be both Hebrew and Greek. And so there was a syncretism. They wanted to call on any particular kind of angel that somebody might deem to exist in order to keep them from uh, negative fate that might come from the hostile powers. And so they, they list these angel names and carry them around with them. And these inscriptions convinced Clinton Arnold that this worship of angels was actually the invocation of the names of angels in order to help their spiritual condition. Yes? Uh,
1: historically, we really need to look at what Joseph Smith did. He took a Jupiter talisman, which is nothing more than a... Uh, a plate and drew symbols of Mars or Jupiter and invoked the spirit of Jupiter into this plate and then wore this. And it was found on his body when they shot him in the
0: Carthage jail. Wow. So that's what pagan religion looks like, okay? So magical names, invocations, incantations, sayings, and things that are supposed to keep one from bad fate or be coming under the hostile powers verse 19 not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God again pointing us back to the sufficiency of Christ verse 20 if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles stoichia of the world why as if you are living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as verse 21 do not handle do not taste. Do not touch. Hmm. Remember do not touch? Where did where did we hear that one? Oh, Roger. I was back on subject, but Smith had this, uh, the Mormons have this thing about spirit babies that are on another planet and they come, you know, all of that. Yeah. Ben Stein has a recent interview with Dawkins who admitted by being a, the big bang guy that he was also an atheist yeah and he kept backing him up and backing him up with questions until Dawkins finally said well our origins might be from another planet where they have and they planted us here so you got Dawkins the atheist and Smith yeah agreeing on our po- possible uh, yeah, origin who's demand yeah 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 according to Mormons uh, there's these other planets and, and if you're If you're a man and you do everything right, you get to be a god at some point and populate your own planet. There's nothing crazy enough that somebody won't teach it. (laughs) Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Why? Well, there is a doctrine of demons. Remember Paul said that forbidding certain foods could be a doctrine of demons? Forbidding marriage would be a doctrine of demons. Why would the demons tell you don't touch, don't handle, don't get married, be an ascetic? Because they'll tell you anything to keep you away from the finished work of Christ. Okay? To point you to human works. Anything but Christ. Yes? Uh, Could you comment on the second half of verse 18? Second half of verse 18. Let's go back here. Taking a stand on visions, he's seen. Yeah, visions was not in the Greek, but taking to stand on what is seen, inflated by. See, this is the, your sh- the basic shaman witchcraft inclination, Troy. Whenever you have this pagan worldview, okay, and you believe that your fate is in the hands of spirits. There always arises, and this is throughout human history. it was true in Egypt, it's true in Canaan, it was true anywhere, Babylonia deities. there always arises a class of people that mediate between the spirits and the people, okay And this class of people, the diviners is called divination in Deuteronomy 18, are people that are better than at, at seeing, the spirits. Okay? So these people claim to have seen the stoichia or the spirit world and be able to therefore identify it and maybe help you not be hurt by it. That's what it it all boils down to. I remember I had a long debate. Somebody from India, a pastor from India, read my article about this. My article's called The Bondage Makers. And he wanted to debate me. And we had an email debate going for a long time. And he said well, you're going to really harm the church by your teaching. He said, because here in India, we know about these spirits. The spirits are everywhere. Everybody traffics in spirits. And I said, well, we're not debating the existence of the spirits. We're debating how one gets free from them. And I'm claiming we get free through Christ, all right, not through knowledge of the spirit world. So we went back and forth and back and forth. So finally I said to this guy, all right, you you answer this question. Do you have shamans and witch doctors in India, and are they successful at helping people get delivered from spirits? I never heard from him again. Because he knew the answer was yes. They do have shamans and witch doctors, and they are good at what they do. They wouldn't get paid if they weren't good at what they do. Yet he knew that they're good at it. There's a reason why they get paid. So if the pagans can deliver from somebody from spirits successfully, then what makes you think that Christians doing the same thing or doing something legitimate? So you have your Christian witch doctor or your pagan one, but they're all doing the same thing. And the pagan ones might actually be better at it. I don't know. They're pretty good. They wouldn't stay in business if they weren't good. So the the visions have to do with being able to see into the spirit world and try to rearrange the cosmic furniture. Could you tell us how spirits came to be? Well, the most plausible... Yeah, well, the most plausible scenario from what we can read that we do know in the Bible is that Lucifer rebelled against God and took all of these beings with him, that they all participated in Lucifer's rebellion. that Lucifer's minions were original rebels as spirits, fallen angels or whatever. Did Christ create Lucifer then? Yeah, God, Christ created everything, including Lucifer, who was created good. But for whatever reason, he rebelled. Now, the best explanation is found in Isaiah 14. Yes.
1: Um, I guess I want to make a comment on the statement that you made That you said that you, said that you had wasted these 10 years in these other movements Well, I don't, I don't think that was wasted Because nobody, who better to teach us about those things As somebody that came from within As opposed to somebody pointing from the without and criticizing So once you came to the solas That, that is from here to eternity <laughs>
0: Amen. Thank you. My wife told me the same thing, because I was lamenting one time. I was looking at John MacArthur and his ministry, and I was thinking, you know, there's a guy who hit the ground running. He knew what to do, 20-some years old. He knew where to go. He knew what to believe. He knew what to study. He knew what to teach. And here, during that same period of my life, I was wasting it. I told that to my wife, Sam. And she said, no, you did not waste it. In God's providence, he chose to use that so that you can warn everybody else about these things. So that doesn't excuse me, but it gives me some comfort. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I still would think, if you are a young person, I would take the John MacArthur route. (laughs) I'd hit the ground running going in the right direction. (laughs) Okay, we're just about done here. I want to talk about. Let's go jump to verse 23. I I absolutely have to talk about this. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self made religion and self abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know what? You can't beat the flesh out of yourself, you can't starve it out. You can't impoverish it. You can take an oath of poverty an oath of obedience. What are the What are the three oaths that the monks take? Poverty, obedience, celibacy, abstinence, or whatever. Okay, it won't do any good. It won't make you more spiritual. It won't make you closer to God. You're going to go through all of that misery, and what you get out of it, nothing. Bad deal, right? Self-made religion, look at that term, self-made religion. That is important. When I debate people that are mystics, they say, well, how do you know that I can't get closer to God by solitude and silence and taking oaths and doing all these things that I do? And my answer is, did Christ give you a promise that if you do those things, you'd get closer to God? Yes or no? And the answer is no. I said, so then what you have is self-made religion. Okay? Self-made religion can't make you closer to God. Whatever Christ told us to do, if we do it in faith, he promises to honor that. Dear ones, we preach the gospel, we pray together, we fellowship together, we have the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have today. We come to God and we do the things that he told us to do, and we believe he's going to honor his promises. Because we're placing our faith in the promises of God, not on man-made religion. So be comforted. I want to share this with you. The reason I want to make this application today from Colossians is be comforted. You are complete in Christ. If you walk in Him in the same manner that you received Him, that's all He's asking of you. Be comforted. He loves you. He cares for you. He has you in His hands. He's not going to let you go. And that will take you all the way to eternity. He'll take you home. <laughs> and you'll be with Jesus forever and ever, worshiping Him and loving Him. So that's the, the, the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sorry, I went a couple of minutes late. Thank you for gathering together with us today. God bless you. <laughs>
1: right,
0: thank you.